friends, welcome. This is it. We have over a decade of episodes unpacking stories and life to help you discover your purpose, your divine design, and what you are wired to do. This is Patty Lynn Wyatt. Please subscribe on YouTube or subscribe to Girlfriend It so we can be in it together. Well, welcome. We are going to unpack a, a horrific topic today. And uh, what a way to, to jump into a show. But this is just a topic that God continuously lays on my heart. And there, there's statistics from worldpopulationreview.com that state that one in five human trafficking victims are children exploited for begging, uh, child pornography, or child labor. And according to the Bureau of Justice, the common misconception about human trafficking is that it does not happen in the United States. And uh, I know I, I'm saying that, and I have been uh, talking about this for the last decade, uh, actually 15 years, and it just I, more and more people are aware of it, and yet it just seems like the numbers keep going higher and higher. And it, it the fact that we think that it's not happening in the U United States, uh, it's just false because it is ranked as one of the worst countries globally for human trafficking. And so with us today, we have Lindsay Holcomb. Lindsay, welcome. Hi there. Thank you, Patty, for having me on today. I'm excited to chat with you. Well, Lindsay, you work at Samaritan Village. It's a safe home and therapeutic program for adult survivors of sex trafficking. But you were also a former case manager at a sexual assault crisis center and a domestic violence shelter. And you're the co-founder of REST, which is Real Escape from the Sex Trade. And I just want to thank you for just following through on the calling that you and your husband that God has given you to be able to be a part of the solution here. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, thank you so much. I'm just grateful that you are talking about this topic. I, I am very excited that um, people would want to, to get more awareness and kind of just get the information out there. So kudos right back to you. Well, you you have been a co-author, uh, I believe, with your husband um, on books like My Fault, yep. uh, Rid of My Disgrace, God Made All of Me, and your latest one, God Made Me in His Image, which um, all these books, I've had a chance to uh, read God Made Me in His Image and a children's book that I, I love. And you have been with us before on another episode. And we, we ran out of time at the very last minute talking about 80% of 10-year-olds that are worried about their bodies and they're already dieting. And you were going into a lot of that as just parents. We don't realize that we're so focused on it at home. And I know I'm guilty of that. And I also think though that social media allowing them, which once again, I'm guilty of having phones at such a young age and being able to get into Instagram and Snapchat and see all of these women and girls, these gorgeous, you know, girls with these twig bodies and go, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be looking at. And they're bombarded, not just, 
how when you and I, you know, looked at a 17 magazine and and saw it, they're they're on it hours and hours of screen time a day of of looking at that. So I just want to address that because we had to get off um, of the other episode and then we'll go into this uh, conversation about sex trafficking. Absolutely. I think you you hit the nail on the head. It's children watching their moms, watching their parents, how they talk about themselves and food and, and other people, like comments that parents will make just about other people out in society. Um, so they're picking up on the language, but most definitely social media, um, you know, has, has just changed over the last decade for sure and what the kids are being um, just kind of inundated with, just images and messages and the pressures of it all. And so I think as parents and caregivers and educators, we've got to, you know, help them navigate that, whether that's with um, conversation about, you know, this is what you're seeing, let's kind of process, let's talk about this. And then also just some restraints, you know, certain time constraints and in control on it, just because I think when it's just let um, loose, it, it just is, so devastating on their psyche and development, um, and, and it really increases the vulnerabilities. When we look at, you know, as, as we're going to be talking about trafficking, um, one thing that I think of is in this last year with so many of our youth on computers and social media because of the pandemic, just how vulnerable that has made them to traffickers who are using social media to make those kind of initial points of contact and start the grooming process. Traffickers are going through Instagram, they're going through Snapchat, they're going through all the latest and newest apps, whatever, they change constantly, I can't keep up. But that's how they are trying to make their first initial contact. Of course, you know, they're they're meeting people and at the malls and on the street and runaways, but they are using social media significantly. And so if we as parents are not educating and preparing our children, like, hey, when you're getting all these like random, you know, friend requests from these people that you don't know, let's talk about that. Like, how can you navigate that? And how can you think through that logically, that that's not getting an older man or even, you know, a little bit older man's um, request to be friend and, and having a conversation with you? That's not healthy. That's not normal. That's not good. That's not edifying. Like, that's dangerous. And so really walking them through that um, is something we can do as, as parents for sure. Well, and it's interesting that you you say that, like, it's not healthy to have an older man all of a sudden start texting you. But as you know, uh, what I have seen is that it's it's usually a little bit more subtle than that. And there's so many other ways that they are befriending these girls. And it's usually the catfishing. It's them saying, oh, yeah, I go to your school. And they're using a really good looking picture uh, yep. and starting these conversations. And I, and I know both of my daughters have shared situations and they were young. Um, as soon as they were able to get to have their cell phone, uh, where they've had somebody say some really gross, disgusting things to them. And it was through, oh, but they're a friend of a friend and they know them really well. And they didn't know them, even as much as I was so aware of it, and I was on top of it, and this right. still happened. Absolutely. Uh, so I think you're, you, you're right, because we have to know there's going to be a variety of avenues um, that they're going to come through, and traffickers are using, um, they're using other women to make contact, and then the mm -hmm. woman will befriend, you know, somebody on social media or, or in school even, and then bring them kind of into the fold to meet the 
the trafficker. Um, we call the traffickers more Romeo pimps here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. because they are acting as these boyfriends that will, you know, groom and seduce and entice with all kinds of lies and manipulation, um, girls and boys, and and kind of make them think, you know, I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to be your, you know, your daddy, or I'm going to be your boyfriend. I'm going to, especially girls and boys coming out of really, really vulnerable situations where there's been maybe abuse in the home, um, just kind of a, a chaotic home life that's unstable for a variety of reasons. And so they can kind of step in and act as the savior and play on all the vulnerabilities and capitalize on all of those. And so we know with this pandemic that traffickers are using all of the insecurities that come with this pandemic of loneliness, isolation, um, not feeling adequate, um, maybe chaos chaos in the home or um, other needs not being met. And they're playing into those for sure. And they are patient. They are so patient Mm -hmm. and deliberate that they will spend time time, 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 time to groom and to recruit. So then they can, you know, capitalize on that later on. Um, and so when I would do some education with, with our executive director of Samaritan Village, she always talked about how traffickers are savvy business entrepreneurs. They know how to kind of lie and wait. They are they're predators and they will take their time to groom and to really isolate an individual so that then they can have full control over them later. Mm. And the, the one situation where I was close to the mother and went to court cases with her and her, her daughter was, was taken at 15 from the mall, uh, literally taken. And Mm. when years, uh, they, they were able during a, a sting operation to get this, gal back she went back to like uh what did you call it romeo pimp Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yep (laughs) so she went back to her romeo because she thought he was in love with her and um i ended up going to her her funeral don't they don't want to be found out and you've already gone to to court for all of this the first time around and it it's it's just horrific and both you and your husband are involved in helping victims of sexual abuse and also domestic violence uh share a little bit more about how you got involved in this what took place that you you know i i like to say the pump the popeye I can't stand it no more. You know, obviously you get to a point where it's like, I have to do something. Absolutely. That's a, that's a good analogy. Um, I got involved in the domestic violence shelter um, kind of nonprofit world fresh out of college. Um, it's funny. I was kind of on the path to go work for the U.S. government, you know, like embassy overseas. That's kind of what I had known growing up. And um, took a job at a nonprofit and was like, wow, I love being boots on the ground and really serving where there's this great need. And I, I had no concept of domestic violence as I was working there. But oddly enough, as I'm going through the initial kind of intake training and we're sitting there learning about the dynamics of, of domestic violence and the power and the control and how it all looks, whether it's physical abuse or emotional abuse, verbal, economic, you know, there's all these different ways that domestic violence can show up. Um, all of a sudden I realized I was like, this is the home that I grew up in with a very 
violent dad emotionally and verbally. And I had normalized it prior to this training because I was like, this is just my life. This is how every home is. This is, you know, that's how I kind of understood the world. Um, but here I am, I'm, you know, college educated. I'm 24 at this point or however old you are when you graduate 22. And I'm having this light bulb moment go off of like, oh my gosh, that was not healthy. That was not right. Like that wasn't love. And so really it, it did a huge kind of switcheroo on me to, to then have to seek out some healing and processing. But um, God obviously took me there for a variety of reasons to serve. And I, and I stayed there and it's, it's a hard place to serve. We call it the ministry of long suffering because there's no quick fix. And most women that are, in, you know, kind of um, caught up in, in encountering domestic violence, it is, you know, they'll, they'll return to their um, abuser seven to 12 times before they'll leave for good. And so that's tough as a caseworker or as someone who's walking alongside someone to be, you know, I see all of the red flags, like get out, get out. But it really, um, I, I know that God has called me or called me to that for that season, one for my own healing and awareness, but also just to realize um, the amount of patience and um, care that comes into that world where you can have your own opinions, but you can educate, but then you really are offering up solutions and options. And then the individual has to choose. This is an adult woman. She's got to choose what she, what she's going to do. And regardless, I need to stand and be supportive and, and be there. And so I worked there for a while and then an opening opened up at the sister organization that was just focused on sexual violence. And I was like, well, I want to get experience in that world. And so I went over there and did a very similar role as an adult caseworker. Um, and by working in those two organizations, I started to hear about trafficking. And it was kind of just starting to be talked about back in, um, this would have been the early 2000s. And nobody really knew a ton about it. We were like, you know, kind of learning about Thailand and Cambodia and kind of starting to watch some movies online, but um, didn't have a full experience until we went out to Seattle and really got to understand the they have an I-4 corridor from Canada all the way down to Tijuana and learning about how traffickers are using that system to kind of shuttle girls around and keep the um, the industry fresh and to keep the girls isolated from family that are maybe looking for them and, and what it looks like, that it's not the same as what we're seeing in Cambodia. Yes, there are instances where somebody is snatched from a mall or from the street but um, just like there's a lot of misnomers and misconceptions about sexual abuse, it's not, you know, growing up, we used to always think sexual assault is from the stranger in the bushes. Well, 80% of the time, it's by someone that the individual knows, um, an acquaintance. And so learning the misconceptions around trafficking um, has been helpful, but it, it's tough as parents, too, because you're like, you know, I, I can protect my kid from the stranger as best as possible, but knowing that it's um, these Romeo pimps, these these traffickers that are grooming and doing this deliberate process is tough because as a parent, you've got to think, I've got to be equipping, I've got to be empowering, but then I've got to be watching, I've got to be aware um, because they are, they are stealth, they are slick. And these traffickers will have multiple women under their control. Um, and each woman is going to bring in between $100,000 and $500,000 a year. And so it is it is tough to get individuals um, kind of out of that system. And then there's so much manipulation. So I started working out there in Seattle. We came to Florida, 
And um, God just really called us to write, to kind of educate and empower and, and, and create awareness through books, especially around the kids' ages, because I'm thinking if I can make an impact there, then maybe when, you know, kids are older and they're teens and, and 20s, things will look different as far as the information that they have. Wow. Okay. Such great information here, Lindsay. And I I still am stuck, though, on your own journey. <laughs> so, first of all, I was typing yep. away because uh, when I share this, as you know, when you started back in 2000, same thing. I remember sharing with my friends because we were going into um, strip clubs and just bringing cupcakes to the girls and mm-hmm. letting them know, hey, we're here for you and we just want to, to let you know you're loved. And I would share some of the stories and my friends would be like, no, no, no. And it, but when you realize the, the salaries that they're bringing in a hundred thousand to 500,000 a year, uh, it, it's, it's insane. And of course you look at people and go, yeah, why wouldn't they be doing that when it's so hard to, to catch them unless we are making people aware of what's going on here. But I want to go back to your own aha time of going through the training and realizing, oh, it, that was normalized in my own home. Uh, I know right now with the pandemic, domestic abuse is skyrocketing. And mm. what's interesting to me, I live in an area um, right next to Scottsdale, and it's it's highly affluent, and that is our number one area for domestic abuse here in Arizona, and that always shocks me because you expect it to be, you know, the guy in the wife beater shirt that right. is coming drunk, <laughs> then to find out yep. it's more in the areas of power. So share that a little bit more. And I also, are your parents still alive? Like, does that feel weird to say, I realized it was happening in my own home? They, yeah, they, they both are still living. Um, they ended up, um, my dad left when I was 13 and, um, you know, a lot of it I didn't understand until I was literally in my twenties. My mom really shielded us from a lot of different things. And so when I was 13, um, my mom and my sister and I left one state moved to another state and then we ended up moving overseas because of a job that she got. But I don't have any contact with my father. I haven't for gosh, 13, 14 years. Um, you know, I've tried to reach out and, and have a conversation, but he has not, you know, wanted to um, continue that. And so there, there still is a lot of pain there and a lot of things, yeah. but I, you know, through writing, um, is it my fault? Our book on domestic violence and, and even, you know, these children's books, but particularly that one, a lot of processing, a lot of healing happened, which was good, but it made me realize how much we can normalize something um, and think like, this is just the way that families interact. This is the way that parents raise their kids. This is, this is love. And I'm just grateful that God plucked me out of that and, and really opened my eyes because I could have easily chosen someone very similar to my dad because I would have been like, well, this is normal. This is how somebody interacts. You know, you see just how um, that generational um, contact and any generational sin will continue based on things that you know and, and have learned. And so I am just beyond grateful for the ways that God has rescued um, and saved me. I mean, from my own sin, but just from my circumstances and 
kind of my future, how he has just prepared that to be so amazing and redemptive and for our girls to have a whole different story. And my mom's doing really well. She married a wonderful man um, back in like 2001 or two. I don't remember which year. And so they're, they're doing fabulous. There's been just a lot of healing there and, and growth, but I think it does, it does really make you realize I came from a really good home. Most of my parents were college educated. I was in a really good university, um, had a lot of opportunities, but it just, that was never discussed. Nobody in my family ever discussed like, Hey, this is what's going on. Um, and even after, even after my dad left, there just, that wasn't a discussion. And so how easily somebody can normalize, um, certain behaviors to think, I'm not being sexually abused or I'm not being trafficked. This is love. This is respect. This is just the way it is. This is the cards uh-huh. I've been dealt. This is what, you know, my mom went through. And that's where I, I believe so much in just the conversation, whether it's when they're little or even older um, at the safe house at Samaritan Village, just having those conversations and helping the survivors process through not only what they've been through, but hey, that instance right there that you're talking about, that was not respect. That doesn't treat you as someone who's made in the image of God with dignity and worth and value. That's actually the complete opposite. Um, And so I think that that's something that is a huge gift that we get to do as Christians is step into the midst of the darkness and the evil and, and really race ahead of the traffickers and, and be able to educate and say like, no, you, you are worth more. You were bought at a price. And this right here represents nothing of that. Um, and it's, it's hard. Like I said, it's a ministry of long suffering that, that takes, if they've been trafficked or somebody has been abused or in a, in a home of domestic violence for years, that's not going to happen overnight. Um, that's going to be a lot of processing as, as certain things get unpacked and triggers happen. Yeah. I have, I have so many questions for you and we only have like eight more minutes. Uh, Show. So, A, I know we, we dove in saying we want to talk about uh, trafficking, and now we, we've hit everything. But I, I do feel um, w- when you're saying having these conversations, because I think it's significant for people listening, even with your own kids, what you shared of not having those conversations, and, and that is what you do here in this home where you're dealing with people that have been verbally and sexually abused is giving them space to have the conversation. You didn't get a chance to talk about it until you were in your early twenties. What would you have liked for your mom to have, to have done, to be able to understand that this, this isn't love, that this isn't a normal, you know, home life. Sure. That's a good question. I don't, you know, it's funny. I don't think my mom probably even had the language um, of domestic violence, of abuse, of kind of that, just because it wasn't talked about at all back in the 80s and the 90s. Nowadays, I think it's so different. I mean, a lot of times people are like, oh, my goodness, we're talking about it all the time. But yes, we need to be. Um, You know, it's in the media. It's, It's really something that a lot of people have heard about. So it's become normalized to almost talk about it. I think there was so much shame, and there still is. There's still a lot of shame around domestic violence, sexual assault, and sex trafficking. I don't want to say that there's not. But I think um, our culture, the environment, 
because we're having these conversations, it's made it a little bit easier to have these conversations because everybody's talking about it. The shame is still there. Absolutely. But I don't think my mom even probably had the language behind it. Um, but it, you know, had she had the language, um, I think sitting down two daughters that are, you know, at that time when my dad left, we were 13 and 15 to really process through like, Hey, the way that you saw your father interact with me, that was not respect. That was not love because I ended up going on and and having a boyfriend in high school that was very similar to my dad and the way that he talked to me and related and yelled. Um, and I could have easily kept on that cycle. Um, and that's a whole nother story, how, how God plucked me from that. But I think a mom could have sat down. My mom could have sat down and been like, Hey, these examples and this way of reading and this way of, you know, handling different situations, that was not respect for me as his wife. That's not how I um, deserve to be treated. That's not how God would have wanted me treated. Um, And just really kind of processing through the examples, there was just no conversation about it. It was just like, we're not going to discuss this. We're moving on to a better situation. And we were just really in survival mode. And so I know that that's, you know, my mom did the best she could. She was an amazing, she has been an amazing mom. And now she's a grandma to our girls. Um, But I think growing up, we just didn't talk about tough stuff, um, regardless what the topic was. So I think that's changed a lot now. Um, in 2020 and 2021, we're, we're having tough conversations. We, we are, and yet we're not, it's like, we hear about it. And then, uh, you know, I, I hear so much and I want to then go back to my kids and I feel like I'm continuously going, Hey, let's talk about this. Hey, hey I'm so <laughs> sorry. It's, it's, it just, it's crazy sometimes. And, um, we're, we're, we really are trying to get through this together rather than staying in it, you know, being stuck in this place where you're just continuously the victim and feeling wounded. And yet, uh, you, sometimes apologizing, you, it makes you feel like you're giving them that pass to, to stay in that victim mentality rather than being able to go, okay, now what, how can we, you know, we're speaking truth. Minute left. And last time I had you on the show, we rushed through. So I, I, first of all, just want to say it has truly been an honor having you on the show, Lindsay. And I, I love unpacking all of this uh, in your book, God Made All of Me and God Made Me in His Image. Uh, just such, I would run and go get that book. I will also put it on uh, my website. And is there one tip in 15 seconds that you can share with everyone? One tip. Um, I would say, you know, you mentioned um, we don't want to always apologize. We don't want to continue like that victim mentality. I do. I agree with that. But I also would say apologies aren't a bad thing. You know, if you haven't been having these conversations with your kids, you can say, hey, I'm sorry that we've never talked about this. Like, I didn't know or I didn't have the tools or I was afraid or whatever it may be. I want to start now. And um, conversations in the car are always a great thing because you're not, you know, if it's a little bit awkward, you're not necessarily staring at each other, but don't, don't feel like, oh man, I've messed up and I I'm lost now. Um, you can start anytime. Awesome. Thank you for that. All right, go out there and apologize and we will be back. Next week. 